Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is podcast, the podcast where we talk to interesting people. Since Scott Ackerman isn't using it anymore, I'm Jason Farr, your host. Let's do this. Really great episode today with writer, actor, comedian, multi-hyphenate galore, Megan Sass. We had a really great talk that touched on creating work, developing as an artist, and she had a lot of thoughtful things to share, which we really appreciated. So here's my chat with Megan Sass. I'm super impressed with just like the variety of things that you've done because you've done a ton of theater stuff. You've done off-Broadway stuff. You've done like a lot around New York City. Uh, You've done live sketch. You've done video sketch. TV work uh, and and a lot of like comedy as a singer uh, and and musician. Uh, I mean, it's so much. Where did it all begin for you? Was it acting? You know, when you put it like that, it actually sounds impressive to me. It's more like oh, I can't commit to anything. <laughs> um, but uh, right, I'm gonna denigrate. I would not be a comedian if I wasn't gonna like take myself down a notch every time <laughs> you try sure. to give me a compliment. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say it, it, it started with acting. I went to Syracuse University for a BFA in acting. But mm-hmm. by the time I had moved to the city, I was already pretty much decided that I was going to be an actor and a, and a playwright. The comedy stuff really did come later. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially compared to, to these, these kids that start at NYU at 18. Right. Or even like starts end up in high school. Um, I am definitely behind that curve. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I guess it started with acting. But I think that the writing was a part of it. So early on that it would be a little bit hard to separate, like right. which of those necessarily came first. Yeah, so both were a, a passion for you. Yeah, I mean, I when I was a kid, the the writing and the acting were both things I wanted to do. I mean, when I was, I think I found years ago, I found something I'd written when I was like six or eight, where it was an assignment for school, and it was like what you wanted to be when you grew up, and it was like the jobs were like. I had said, you know, I want to be a a poet, but since I know people can't sustain themselves that way, I guess I'll also be an actor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so now, that was going to be easier. And I had listed one of my idols as Barbara Streisand. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I wrote my first play in college freshman year. We actually had an assignment. We had to write a play and it could be like, wow. you know, a 10 page thing. And I went ahead and wrote like a full length thing invoking like different portions of the Bible and like Da Vinci code style cross comparing it to other other publications of the Bible and the Quran and like I wrote this whole mystery thing and um then we we performed a version of it at a festival sophomore year and then senior year I was studying in New York City with something called the Tepper semester uh at Syracuse University and mm-hmm. um you know, one of the things you're frequently told when you go to acting school is like this percentage of you are just not going to make it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're you're also told you're also told like this percentage of you will be working in theater, but 
but not in acting. Mm-hmm. And I had also found this flyer for The Lark, that um, which is a major playwriting, uh, new, new playwriting uh, uh, company, organization. And I started rewriting my play to submit it. And I was basically thinking like, you know what, if I'm not an actor, that's okay. I think the writing is something that I want to do just as much, if not more. And so I basically left college being like, I, you know, the, the writing was, was maybe at, at the forefront. Like if I had to choose one, it would just be the writing. Oh, wow. um, but at the same time, I feel like when you say that, then people are like, oh, so it's fine. We won't think of you as an actor anymore. Uh, right. And right. I, and I want that, you know? And so like eventually I, I found my way to comedy or I don't know that anyone finds their way to comedy. Like, <laughs> Bad things happen to you, and you decide to become a comedian. Like, like that's that's what happens. And I, and it, it was it's great because it's it's sort of like you can't really separate the writing from the performance. Right. I mean, you can to a certain degree in sketch comedy, but any kind of stand up and like where I do musical stand up, you can't really separate that. It's as much about the writing as it is about your delivery, and, mm-hmm. and one mm-hmm. feeds off the other. And so many sketch actors are you can't really be a sketch actor without also writing your own material. And most people who write also perform in some capacity. So that was sort of like the natural, I think marriage of like, am I a writer or an actor? Well, yes. Right. I mean, that's the thing. So many people are doing both. So, you know, you don't have to choose. (laughs) And um, it's, it's, it's just really cool that you were doing that from the beginning for you. uh, Yeah, but they were very separate. Right. Like I had kept my, acting very separate i was not performing in almost any of my own stuff i saw them as as separate entities oh and um i actually and and today i don't even think it's like well you can do both it's almost like you have to like more and more you're expected to write your own material to produce your own material to edit your own material Mm -hmm. um but in fact you're it's not even like you're in an advantage for having more skills you're at a disadvantage if you don't have all of the above skills just the way that media is now, I think that that's, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not an editor. So it's sort of like, you know, anytime I want to create something, it has to be, I have to have a team of other people. There are some people that really can do everything on their own. um, And that's almost becoming the norm. Yeah. I mean, I have my theories about it. Some people can do all of it, but you know, sometimes you watch like a movie where uh, the, the person who directed it also wrote it and there are just so many holes, yeah. not necessarily plot line, just like in just sort of what a movie feels like. And a lot of those times I'm like, yeah, I feel like they should have had another voice in the room. You know, like somebody else should have been there saying eh, this script needs a little something else or, or, or maybe someone else needed to, to direct it. But it's, it's great that there's so many people who can do it all, but I do think two heads are better than one. And so sometimes, at least at the beginning, it seems like it's a little better to have a team around you. Oh, sure. Well, and I mean, it's not like I'm doing anything that I haven't like run by some friends. And mm-hmm. I think the stuff that's been the best is the stuff I can point to and be like, I had a really good relationship with that. Like, so my, like one of my favorite sketches is about police brutality. It's called trigger warning. Mm-hmm. And the director that I worked with is one of my best friends, Keisha Zoller. 
But oh, I oh, she's been on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I'd also run a. The director in that case wasn't even the DP. Like we also had had Andy on there, who's an amazing, amazing director of photography. He edited. He's an amazing editor. He's also a great director. And so it was just like you had that sort of synergy in the room. And then I also felt free as a writer to be like, hey, can we make sure we 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 play this up or can I change this line here? But I had also shared that script and gotten feedback from. I mean, first of all, I was writing about police brutality. So as a white woman, I was not going to put that script out there without a, you know, I wouldn't have done it with anybody other than Keisha. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have. um, I mean, I could have, but also like. Keisha was somebody that I already had so many conversations with about about this that I trusted her. Right. But like James III, who's also a member of Astronomy Club, gave me some some just super important notes on that. Mike Brown, who was in the sketch, gave me some super important notes on that. I probably ran up my by Matt Garing, who who's a white guy, but is one of the best writers and note givers I know. Um, Asterios Kokonos gave me notes on that, and and like ultimately made it so that. I I took a much smaller role based on some notes that, that he was giving me, but I think ultimately it made the sketch better. Mm. Um, so even, I think, yes, it, it's, it's the, and often I think things can look like people are doing it on their own, but in fact, like, no, you've got notes from people, you've got people backing you. And very often in the industry, it's designed to look like this person did these this thing all on their own, right? But when mm-hmm. you have shows like, the Amy Schumer show or Key and Peele, it's like there's a full writer's room mm-hmm. behind those people. Like nobody is nobody is doing this, even <laughs> though they're the product and they're like the genius. I mean, because Key and Peele are like two of my favorite. I mean, that's one oh, of my gosh, favorite. So good. Two of my favorite creators, but they're not doing it without additional producers and writers, etc. You right. know, and and uh, yeah. And now a lot of these things that are like from Jordan Peele, it's like often he's the producer, but he's not like Candyman. He wasn't the writer on Candyman. Right. And that's sold as like a Jordan Peele entity, which it is. But as a producer, not as a director and writer. Yeah. Right, right, right. Exactly. Now that he has the platform, he's Mm -hmm. also able to support other like Mia DaCosta writing screenplay for Candyman. Right. He's able because of his name mm-hmm. to also put out other amazing creators. I mean, specifically other black creators, right? right. And, and black creators within the horror genre. So, um, and I and I think we as audience members of the general public just use it as like the name we recognize, and we forget that there's other people who they may not be getting credit is the negative, but also it's like people are paying their bills because they're attached to these projects with people that are, that, that, that have already earned a degree of, of fame. Right. Just to sort of guide people through your career and your journey. <laughs> like, so you studied at Syracuse university yes. and yes. I don't know where you're, you're originally from. I assumed you were. I'm from Cincinnati. Ohio. Yeah. So I... I'm from Ohio. Okay, so great. I was a Midwest person so like, who yes, moved to the East Coast for college. <laughs> moved here, like, I didn't even so apply people. to any Ohio schools. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I had apply, I didn't even apply to schools within Ohio. Um, even though CCM was right there, but it was like if I wasn't going to go to. I wasn't. I decided not to go to school for musical theater. I would. I was. I'm not a dancer. Like I would not have gotten into CCM. Mm-hmm. Um. So yes, I, I, I had already made the transition from Midwest to West. 
to East mm-hmm, Coast mm-hmm. in that sense before then going to New York City, sure. Right. How uh, was it, I assume it was immediate that you came down to New York City after you graduated? Yes. I, I actually think the day after I graduated, there was a like a very small reading of one of my plays. Mm-hmm. Like in a classroom at NYU or something, a friend of mine who was producing, she had a Sarah, Sarah Ann Massey, um, she had a, a, a company and they were doing a reading of my show. So I was actually in New York City the day after graduating, then had to go back to Ohio to get ready to move and then oh, move. Wow. But yes, I moved, I moved pretty, it was, it was a school to New York situation for me. I didn't, I didn't take like a year back in the Midwest. Um, I was right. into New York. And what was the focus at that time? Had you found comedy as a part of your life or were you oh, focusing? No, pr- that was, no, it was all theater. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, look, I think it was all theater and anyone that's like my focus of theater wants to do television and film. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I was writing theatrical plays. I was submitting them to festivals and, and theaters and like writers workshops. And I was auditioning and I was doing that, you know, via knowing about projects or backstage or, or showing up at equity calls and waiting in line. I was, I, because of Syracuse stage, I was a equity membership candidate, Mm -hmm. but it was a lot of, a lot of like the grind of that. And I, and I never really, I mean, I, I, I did, we, we did some cool, like early on, I had this show that I wrote called Fanboy, which is mm-hmm. about Superman. Um, and I'm, I'm wearing my Superman ring right now during mm-hmm. this interview. Um, but I, that was in the Samuel French off, off Broadway Festival. Mm-hmm. And that was within a couple of years of my moving to the city. And that's actually where I met the director, Jesse Geiger, who is the director of my musical that I would do in the Fringe five years later. Um, so we did that and I got to the final round. I didn't win. I wasn't one of the five winners, but I was in the final round and got some very good feedback. So, so that was great. And I, I also had someone tell me early on in a totally separate setting, like you've had a bunch of your work, like get selected for things early on. It's not always going to be like that. Mm. Like it's, it's going to get way harder than it is for you right now. And, um, they were correct. I mean, I, (laughs) I then spent a lot of years. I mean, it's like Sam, Sam French was like a, a big festival and that was great. But I also did a lot of like hole in the wall type stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of like self-organized readings that like friends I went to college with. Swim and Sarah Buse headed up this uh, for a brief period of time, the theater company of Syracuse alums. And they did um, a lot of, they produced, she produced a lot of stuff that I had, written and I'd written specifically like four people I knew in in a lot of the cases, but, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get into comedy. I, the first comedy thing I ever did was college humor sketch. Oh, wow. Uh, I had done. Yeah. Yeah. What was that? So I kind of from like zero to 10 on that or zero (laughs) to eight. I mean, whatever, like to me, college humor was like a big deal. It was. And I had done no comedy. And then I was in a college humor sketch with like an actually good role with Mitch McGee and Josh Rubin. Wow. Like it was there, they had written it. So what had happened there is that I'm sure that any actors listening to this are familiar with one-on-one, right? Or any, mm-hmm. or like the actors the, green room uh, or studio these places here, where yeah. you essentially, mm-hmm. 
You're right. You you pay to audition for mm-hmm. casting directors and, and directors and agents and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I never had any luck or I never got an agent. Like, I'm, I'm still looking for representation but i had i had i did better with actual casting directors and there was steve cozzarelli was a was a producer for college humor at the time and mm-hmm. he had a session where you you came in and you're supposed to do a comedy monologue and i was like well i'm not gonna do a freaking theatrical comedy monologue i'm i'm gonna and i was like you know what i'm just gonna write something and what i ended up doing is i wrote a children's story I'd already written this children's story with like a really bleak ending. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, what if I just tag out a couple lines to the beginning of the end on this and make this children, this fucked up children's story into a monologue. <laughs> and then I did it as my monologue for Steve. And then when it was like, he laughed where he was supposed to laugh. And I was like, great. And then at the end he was like, you know, what's that from? And I was like, I wrote it. I'm a writer, you know, because also part of my thing was like, this is a comedy thing. So it's fine for me to be like, I wrote my own material. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, yeah. And then I got called into audition for um, the sketch talking dirty that Mitch McGee was directing and Josh Rubin and Mitch had, had written. And um, I, I think it was Josh and Mitch wrote it together, but I, either way, it was Josh Rubin and Mitch McGee's project. And um, I showed up at, at like college shooter, college humor headquarters to audition. And I was like, what am I even doing here? Like I don't <laughs> belong here. And I auditioned, and and they were like, yeah, that was, like, pretty much I did the first read, and they were like, we don't have any notes. And I was like, oh, they do not like me. Uh Like, they they think that's adequate, but they're not even going to want to work with me. And then, like, weeks went by, and I was like, I clearly didn't get that gig. And they were like, yeah, we want you to come in and play this part. And I was like, what? (laughs) And so then, like, like, over the summer of, I think I was, I was 25, and I did that sketch, and I had also just started writing some of my own sketch. And then um, I simultaneously, I ended up dating this comedian who was like, I always say, like, I dated a comedian, and he was so horrible, I became one. <laughs> but it's, it's part of the story, because it was like, I felt so shitty after that, you know, three months of interacting with that person, that I was like, I'm going to write a comedy song to get over this. Oh, funny. And I wrote it and I played it for my friends and they liked it. And I don't do that song anymore, but I was like, maybe I'll write some other stuff. So I started then doing, I started doing musical stand-up. I started writing for Heave Magazine. And then I did that college humor sketch, like all kind of within the same, like three months period. Oh, that's really cool. And so then, so when I turned 26, I started then doing, yeah, I started doing some musical stand-up and doing more work for Heave. And, um... I, I did, like, I took a UCB class. Um, I ended up being part of a, of a short-form improv show group for a couple of years. And, like, it all kind of happened around the same time. And then, but it wasn't, in, but then only after that did I, did I do regional theater. Like, I did the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey after I started doing comedy stuff. Oh, wow. And then had a, a workshop for a play that I wrote. And then it was the summer that I was doing... Um, I was doing Playboy of the Western World at Shakespeare Theater, New Jersey, and my play in the middle had a workshop with the Active Theater. And I was like, all I had wanted to do, like all through college and then after, was do Irish theater. And I was finally doing an Irish show. Uh. And I was, um, after being told, like, I was too Jewish to ever play Irish, which is probably true on film 
but he cast four redheads in the show. So that's what got me in. Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I was like, you know what? I actually would rather be doing the writing stuff. And I think I'm going to focus on that now. And then, um, I started to make that my focus, but it wasn't even until I was 29 that I was like, you know what? I'm just, just going to focus on comedy. Oh, wow. So I was still kind of balancing the theater and the comedy and the acting and the comedy. And then I was 29 when I did my musical in the fringe. So then it was also like, I'm going to just commit to the comedy and try to just do comedy videos was also the time when it was like, no, just kidding. Now I'm going to go back and do the theater project. (laughs) But that that musical was a culmination of everything because if I hadn't been, it started from some of my musical stand-up songs Mm -hmm. and worked with the director to write the story. Like he and I wrote the story together. Then I wrote the book and, um, our, our composer, uh, uh, Nathan, Nathan Lee came in and did, um, uh, uh, the, the, the vast majority of the, of the lyric and music writing, um, especially the music and all of the orchestration. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's like, I, I was also my first time starring in a musical, even being in a musical in years. And it was also the first time that I was starring in something I'd written. And so it was like the culmin, like I couldn't have done that without the playwriting background. I couldn't have done it without the comedy background. Like I spent a lot of time just talking to the audience. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't have been able to do it. I think if I hadn't been doing a, a lot of like front, like teaching and a lot of um, like stand up type work so it was it was sort of like a culmination of all of that coming together and it was my first like openly queer project it was a big science fiction project like it was it was kind of just like everything in my life sort of was like okay this could not have happened if it hadn't been for this 87 other pieces <laughs> yeah and it sounds like a lot of things were happening and then they all came together they culminated in this great project but we didn't mention where music came in uh so you play guitar i know i've seen that do you play any other instruments not really Mm -hmm. i mean i no Uh, let's just go with no okay i can can bang on a melody line on a a piano and i can like bang a tambourine but (laughs) sorry disappointing answer i'm not that's not a disappointing answer it's cool that you play guitar so when did you start learning uh, you know things musically when did music become a part of your I, life? I mean, I was always singing. Mm-hmm. Like I was, and I, I was like, I had like a good voice as a kid, and then I no longer had a good voice, and then like I had a good voice again. It was like <clears throat> some period of puberty, I could like no longer mm-hmm. sing, and mm-hmm. then um, it's I weird how that happens with puberty. I mean, I guess, but it was also like it wasn't my focus, and I, I don't, who knows? But I, like, my mom would do this thing where like every Friday night she would sit us down and watch like a Turner classic musical. Mm -hmm. So musical theater was like a big part of my life Mm -hmm. before any of the other things. And, um, I started taking voice lessons in like, I don't know, seventh, eighth grade. I started taking voice lessons actually to prep for my bat mitzvah. Oh wow. Um, cause I was going to be chanting a bunch of stuff and wanted to be able to do that. Um, and then I ended up doing, I was, so I played the saxophone 
from like fifth to ninth grade. And I like, there was a, maybe a brief moment where I was actually good at it, but <laughs> I got into like the high level choir, but not the high level band. And I could, you know, singing was a thing you could do in theater. And like, I cared more about theater and acting and was doing that in school. And, um, joined show choir as soon as I possibly could in high school. So, um, and then was doing, you know, theater and musicals all throughout high school. And I I was also taking dance. Again, I was not a good dancer, but I (laughs) I took dance starting when I was four years old, but I stopped at 12. And I'm like, there were years where I was three to four days a week going to dance class. But I wasn't, or I was taking, like, hours of dance class a week, but I was never one of those hardcore kids where it was, like, four hours every day or four hours four times a week. And I was just total shit at picking up choreography. So I was basically like, I I guess I'm just bad at this. I can't do this. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was more like what I was like, oh, I can be an actor and singer and just be able to move. I don't know if it's be a dancer was a way better uh, <laughs> avenue. When you I'm wrote... very jealous of it a truly good dancer (laughs) when you wrote that first song after that breakup um had you written any funny songs up to that point no i mean other than like as a teenager when i was learning to play guitar like joking around Mm -hmm. no i mean look i'm sure if we look back you could probably dig up like comedy songs i've written jokingly with friends right but the idea that i was doing it that anybody would actually hear it? No, this was like the first time. Um, yeah. That's really yeah. cool. It like, you know, I mean, that was another situation where a bunch of things that you had just had experience with, uh, various things right. kind of culminated in something, uh, something big. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I don't think it was big. I mean, I think we have different definitions of what something big is. Because well, <laughs> <laughs> when you actually like, get your first television writing job, it's often it's often the culmination of like eighty. I don't know why my go to number is always eighty seven, but like eighty seven other things, and like it looks to people like, oh, you had this big break, but in fact, it was all of these right other projects leading you there. And in fact, each of those other projects was, as you're saying, like the result of eighty seven other projects, right. or the result of eighty seven other projects. like. So I um. But yes, I was a, I'm a music teacher. Like my day job, quote unquote day job, is I, I do music with kids is most of what I do. I'm a teacher and I do music with kids. So yes, I mean, that's what kept me playing guitar. Ah. And it's like the simple chord structure I'm using in any of my songs <laughs> is not dissimilar to like the chord structure of whatever children or folk music I'm doing at, camp, at like summer camp with kids. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it's all connected. Yeah. <laughs> Did you just say it's okay? No, no, no. I was saying, <laughs> I was saying okay. I, I hear know you. it's okay. I know that's an acceptable way of doing it. <laughs> no, no, no. I, was, I wasn't saying it's okay. I was saying okay and like okay. I get you, where you're coming from. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's move on to something more. Interesting. No. Yes, absolutely. I think all so of it's fair. interesting, honestly. <laughs> I mean, that's why I'm bringing it up. Sure. Because it's, I don't know. I just think it's cool that someone is like. It sounds like. Obviously, a lot of uh, a lot of time was put into it uh, growing up, learning about things. But you know, you're so naturally, you seem so naturally gifted at these things, and uh, you know, it's well, cool to see it all come together. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I 
the goal is to make oneself look naturally gifted, but obviously <laughs> there's a lot of time that goes into it, and there's much more time than goes into the actual writing, goes into the worrying about the writing. That's a major part of the oh, process. Yeah. It's just the the sheer amount of anxiety and yeah. pacing in my apartment. Yeah, thinking through for hours before I put anything down on paper. Yeah. You know, I appreciate that you're bringing that up because I feel that that is a huge roadblock for a lot of people where they start saying like, oh, gosh, all these people who are so talented and do all these things, I'm not that good. So why should I even bother trying? And it's just like getting over that low self-esteem, that that lack of confidence is such a major writing block and creative block. It's more than that because, first of all, you never get over it. True. It's not like, oh, well, I, I mean, like, that hurdle and now I'm in the clear. It's such, it slows people down so much to even try and start. Sure. And to know that yeah. there are people who are saying like, hey, I'm whenever I have to write new stuff, that's pretty anxiety inducing to me. And they've yeah. learned some tricks of the trade or learned how to sort of power through and still get that work man, accomplished I, like what are you doing yeah, I, god i don't know man i think it's actually harder now than mm. it was in my early 20s like in my early 20s i could like take my laptop whatever version of a laptop i was using at that time and then like i would i would like go i would go for like these hour-long walks throughout the city and then i would like stop in a restaurant and i would like some diner or something that was open and I could just like sit and write for hours and work on a play. Mm-hmm. And like, I can't do that anymore. Like it's, and I, it's part of it is I'm writing stuff that is often shorter. Like now that I'm trying to get back into like working on a television pilot and like, do I want to write a screenplay? It's, it's like, Oh, I got to get back into that mentality of like long form again, mm. which is difficult because I've been doing now sketch. Mm-hmm. And, and musical stand-up, which is to me just a version of sketch. It's the same structure as sketch. Um, you know, your your chorus is the game, and then the different beats are the are the verses. Right. Um, it, it's it's harder for me now to sit down and actually accomplish that. And I also feel that like when you're starting out, it's like there's so much hope and like possibility ahead of you. Mm. And the more years I go without like a quote unquote break, or feeling like I haven't done enough, it's like there is even more weight pressing down. So I actually, yeah. I don't, I don't think I've gotten better. I actually think it's, it's like, it's gotten harder for me. And it's also like the stakes get like the, the more I accomplish, the more it's like, Oh, every time I feel closer to like any kind of success, I'm also reminded just how far I have to go. And mm-hmm. so it's like the more you learn, the more you learn you don't know, and the more you learn you haven't accomplished. And so that in and of itself becomes kind of crushing. And and I, oh, and I also feel like... Uh, uh, you're saying so much that it's like, I'm right there with you and <laughs> like uh, yeah, not... Right. And it, you know. and yeah, right. And it would be one thing I think is like, there's definitely a large amount of anxiety that's like, I'm not good enough, but there's also this amount of, I mean, maybe I'm going to sound like an ass, But sometimes I'm like, no, I am good enough, but no one will ever know, Hmm. or I won't get a shot. Mm -hmm. Or it's like, I'm good enough, but I'm only good enough in this arena, but I don't have all these other skills. So I, oh my God, how stupid was I that I thought I was good enough, and maybe I am a good enough writer at this thing, but I'm so bad at selling myself or editing or whatever Hmm. these things that it's like, 
I'll never be able to use the skills that I have. So, or or it's like, I have them, but I don't have the connection. Mm -hmm. So, it's not always just feeling like you're shit. Sometimes it's actually feeling like you're actually good at some stuff, but you're shit at other things. Well, in regards to that, I did hear somewhere where Tina Fey said that, I think Lauren Michaels told her when she said, oh, but I can't do X, Y, Z. Like, I think it was before 30 Rock. He was like, you could hire people to do that. And that's, I guess, the sort of saving grace in those situations. Like, you can't edit, but, you know, you can hop on Fiverr and find somebody who can. But Sure, but... There's also an entirely different situation when you're already Tina Fey and Lauren Michaels is giving you a show. <laughs> For sure. Like, but of course that's true. And it's like, yes, I, if my television show ever, if I can ever get my pilot sold, I have no, I'm not going to direct it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, Right. I'm not going to direct. I'm not going to like I I'm very willing. Like, I prefer the collaboration and I prefer <laughs> being able to work with other people. Um, I have no qualms about that. It's more the the issue of like, especially the more and more content or like people get their break from like content they produce themselves. It's like, um, it's like Mary Neely has been making movies for how long? And she's now getting some traction during this quarantine period because she's made these brilliant you, you, do you know what I'm talking about with Mary Neely's musical theater videos where she lip syncs and she plays all the parts? No. Oh my God. It's, it's phenomenal. And like, she had like 1500 Twitter followers and now she has like 25,000 or something. Wow. Because, and and like, it took a couple of weeks for these things to like really start to break out. Mm -hmm. But she's part, I mean, honestly, the thing that floors me is not like, Oh, these are, these are cute, funny videos that are good to look at. It's like, the actual editing skills that goes into doing what she does is yeah. like that to me is the stuff is, is her con- conceptualization and follow through like through the editing that to me is like her performances are delightful don't get me wrong but I watch them and I'm like her performances are amazing but what's really impressive to me is that she was able to put this together and the, the sheer amount of time and like ways you would have to problem solving you would have to do to put these things together is what is was is is even more admirable is like she's not a great performer she's a freaking like full full-fledged filmmaker mm-hmm. and she's been doing it for a long time but she's now like showrunners are looking at her and and agents are looking at her because of this thing she did despite her having already created this like body of work and the fact that she was able to not only come up with this concept, but execute it, and also is a phenomenal editor, is like part of what, what like is is that part of what's getting her noticed? Like, I think that it's easy to look and be like, well, she had this really good idea, and she's a fun performer, and that's what's getting her noticed. That's like ten percent of it. Hmm. And part of my point is also that I think she was doing this stuff for how many years, and yeah. now is the moment when it got. Honestly, I mean, as tough as those years are, there's a part of me that feels like that's almost better than, you know, when it happens before you're ready for the next thing. <laughs> I have, and I've heard that argument before is, is, is like, because I have some friends that are like really, really breaking through at this point. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about Keisha and my friend um, James III. And I think he's oh. a phenomenal performer. 
Like, I think that, I mean, he, he did an episode of Black Mirror. He's been like, he's, he's a very versatile actor. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping that he will get more work, not just in comedy, but also in drama. Um, and I, But I mean, friends of mine that are like really breaking through, um, it's happening more in their like mid to late 30s. So I'm in a group of people that it's happening it's happening in, in like the, the 33 to 38 arena, mm-hmm. not in the 23 to 27 arena or the 22 to 27, 23 to 28 arena. Mm-hmm. So it's like some of it is, is like people do break through at different times. And yes, if you break through super early and you don't either don't have the right people behind you mm-hmm. or you don't have the ability to sustain it, then right. like you'll have had that moment and it'll pass. Right. Or it'll pass and it'll take another 20 years to get back in the game. And so, like, better to break through when you actually, like, Are ready have for it. all other backing. Like you, right. like, you can break through with one idea and then figure out your next idea. But more likely you need to break through with one idea and you need to have those other five ideas, like, already ready to go. Yeah. So, sure. Right? Or you need to know how to just operate within the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes. Yeah. I think there's definitely an argument to be made for that. And I, I think it always sort of feels like, you know, I won't care how long it took me as long as I do end up eventually getting to like share my voice and get paid to do this. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like when you're in the period where you haven't broken through and you're like, this is never going to happen for me. It's there's no guarantee it is ever going to happen. And so it's a lot easier to look back from a place of comfort or power than it is to like be in the, in like the period where you're just hustling and waiting. Yeah. Um, but also the goalposts are always moving. So when you're at the next level, you're looking towards the next step. And then when you're there, you're looking towards the next step. Like there is no rest in this business. There is no place where you sit back and you're like, and now I've made it. It's smooth sailing. Like <laughs> right. everyone just feels struggling all the time. It's there are always new challenges. Right, right. There are always new challenges. I mean, like, you look at uh, a a first person comes to mind for some reason is George Clooney. Like, he was knocking around as sort of a kind of an also-ran actor, just sort of like on Murder, She Wrote and stuff like that. And then he finally gets a big break with ER. Then he gets into movies. Then he starts directing and producing stuff, you know? And that's they all come with their new challenges. Right. And he'd also been the star of, like, many, many, many pilots that didn't get picked up. I think for me, it's, like, someone who's, like, starring in pilots that aren't getting picked up, it's, like, yeah, I wish I had that problem. (laughs) You know, like, like, for for real, I would like to be two or three steps ahead in the the letdowns that I have. I would like to have bigger and better letdowns than I have right now. Yeah, because at least you get paid. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you're not going to get paid for a whole season. But you get paid for that pilot. You get paid and like people in the industry obviously like you. They're continuing to cast you in these not picked up pilots. Right. It's, um, right. It's just finding the right thing. It's like, well, it's, I don't even know if it is finding the right thing. Like I don't, I think the idea is like, I don't know that there is as much of an order to this as we would like to believe there are. Like I think, Oh, it's definitely not. Yeah. There are things you can do to increase your odds, but there are 
certainly exceptionally talented people that just like don't. They don't get on that level. Yeah. Even if they get super appreciated, they don't get on that level. And it's, and that's where I I always, when people talk about making it, it's like, there's so many different varieties of what that can be for people. That's also true. Yes. Yes. I mean, there's also people like Maria Bamford who are like, just one of the best in the industry. I don't mm-hmm. think she's a household name, but certainly uh, respected in the comedy community is a right. Yeah. I hope it is. Like, I mean, I think she's amazing. So oh, I saw, yeah. I've heard is like, I mean, I think she's great. And, um, I think she does have a lot of respect, but yeah, she's not the, the name that Amy Poehler is. Right. 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 You know, it's but not that's that not a bad thing. thing. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know? I would right. love to be a Maria Bamford. Well, that's sort of my, my point, right? Is, is that like, and I also think of like the projects that excite us as, as like comedians, like I, like I always look at astronomy club and I'm like, I, I'm biased because I'm friends with a bunch of people in it. (laughs) Um, but it's like, to me, it's like, what a great, amazing show. Right. And I I don't, again, Mm -hmm. that's not, I'm always like any chance I have to be like, watch astronomy club. So like my friends or family were like strangers, like, I'm buying a new pair of glasses and we're talking about comedy. Hey, by the way, have you heard about Astronomy Club? You should look at <laughs> that on Netflix. Like, it, it's like, I don't, it's not, or like Black Lady Sketch Show is this other fantastic mm-hmm. show with like people that I look up to tremendously. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what the average, first of all, I don't know who the average person is and I don't know what kind of comedy. Like I, Like, I also think that like, what is necessarily the most watched is not the stuff that to me changes history necessarily. I 100% um, agree with that. And every once in a while you do have these things, or not every once in a while, but you have these things like, like it's a Ray and insecure where it's like, it's both really good and really popular. And like, right. it's great that both of those things are true. Yeah. But, I'm not going to mention the things that I think are really popular and aren't that good. I'm just going <laughs> to. I don't want you to. No. And I started to, and I didn't want to mention. I was like, yeah, I, won't. I was like, I'm not. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I want to go back to something you said about how hard it can be, even harder to write now than before, and how like in your 20s you would go and sit in the coffee shop all day and write. Why do you think you can't? sit in the coffee shop all day now is it uh just like time or is it the process is just so different for you now i think i think some of it is attention span Mm -hmm. i think maybe my attention span is even shittier now than when it was than than what it was in my early 20s and i think that like some of that might be like increased use of screen some of that some of that i think is almost definitely an increase in my anxiety level Mm -hmm. um i think some of that is it's like mounting pressure i think some Mm -hmm. of that is a change in modality like again like i can sit and write a sketch from beginning to end Mm -hmm. like but i but i'm not gonna write 20 pages of a play like part of it is is that my brain has sort of shifted in terms of how it thinks about like what a beginning middle and end is and what Mm -hmm. a project is um that is a weird thing about getting older because there are certain things that i was like i used to just go and do it when i was 26 and 27 and now i'm like Huh, do I need to do that though? You know, like I'm thinking about it and it's, you know, I, I think some or of it is just changing, actually, but then some of it, yeah, I think yeah. I think our attention span or is messed up I because actually, of cell phones. <laughs> sure. Or now I actually enjoy cleaning my apartment, so it's a 
It's a worthwhile distraction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also, I mean, I mean, look, we're obviously doing this during a pandemic. So there's also, it's, it's very hard to write right now. And I think especially in a coffee shop. Well, that's my point is, is that (laughs) I prefer not to write at home and that's not an option. Uh. And, um, so that's a big impediment is, is like, cause what I can do is be like, you're going to write for an hour. You're going to like sit, you're going to go an hour before they close and you're going to sit and you're going to be there until they close. Like I can do that or I can go two hours before. And that's not an option anymore. Um, and there's all sorts of other pressures in survival. And I am still, I'm very lucky that I'm still teaching. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my creative energy is going towards like writing lessons or shtick or skits or characters or puppet shows for kids. So mm-hmm. some of it is, is like, I am working, but I, I have to get that stuff done. And that's always been part of it too, is, is like what has to get done so that I can continue to pay my rent versus mm-hmm. like, what am I doing as a means towards moving towards the, the number one career that I want. Right. Um, and, and I mean, look, this puts all sorts of stuff into perspective. Is is like, You know, I've been lucky to have a day job I actually like and I find meaning in. And now it's like, you know what? There's actually a lot of meaning to be gained and importance in the world to just my being a teacher. And so, like, I don't need to denigrate that. Like, that's still a good thing that I'm doing. Oh, yeah. And I'm I'm only the kind of teacher I am because I'm also a writer. And I do write a, a lot of, like, creative programming, including, like, short shows for kids. So... That's also part of it. Like, again, all of the skills kind of come together in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, 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 I mean, I think it's very easy to look at there's certain people and I'm like, how are you creating anything right now? And it's just like, <laughs> if I have a burst of inspiration, like I wrote one new song so far. And, yeah. and I, like when I was able to do that and it was sort of like days of buildup and I had this idea. And then when I did finally sit down and write it, it was probably like, 40 minutes where I like knocked out the lyrics. Right. And it was like, that's it. Now I've written the song, like in this short span of time, maybe it was even like 25 minutes where it was like, after all this buildup, I've now like shat this thing out and then I go back and edit it. But it was still like, didn't need a massive amount of editing. And then there's also the being like, okay, you've gotten it out. You're going to now step away from it. But it's like, I'm trying to edit this pilot. And it's also, I think that for me, there is a degree of, well, I can get this thing done in this one sitting and then go back and redo it is a lot easier for me to deal with than the idea of like, I'm not going to get a new edit of my pilot in one sitting. I'm not going to write a television pilot in one sitting. I'm not going to like the idea that I can't do it all in one sitting is I think often an impediment for me. It becomes this like insurmountable task because I'm, I'm going to have to do it over shorter periods of time. And you sometimes have to be okay with like Ashley Nicole Black, I, I think is <laughs> the person mm-hmm. who had tweeted like today I sat down and I wrote three sentences and like, it was a good day. And oh, like, yeah. sometimes you have to be like, I, I, that was it. That's all I got done today. Fine. So I've, I've been working on this pilot. It's like, here's the list of things that need to get edited. And every time I sit down, I'm only going to tackle one or two of these things. Mm-hmm. And, I'm starting with the easiest stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, like I'm cutting this character. 
okay, the first thing I'm going to do is go through and literally just delete that character. And then, and then I'll patch up the areas around where I removed this character. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it wasn't that hard to patch up also shows me that, yes, I did need to, in fact, cut that character. It was kind of easy to cut that character. But, like, but like the fact that I have to, like, change this character arc or write a new ending, those will be the last things I do. And also, it's like, I got to change this character's voice, which means I got to go into every scene they're in. Right. Okay, I'm going to just do act one today. And then I'm going to write, I'm going to go back to my, my checklist and I'm going to write ongoing so that it's like, I know that I started it. I can look at my list and say I accomplished something, but I know I'm not finishing it yet. Um, you know, there's this, okay, I'm about to get really philosophical with you, but um, please do. I, I, I am a Hebrew school teacher and there's this, um, one of my favorite Jewish teachings. Wow. This is, this is a different kind of nerdy. Like, we haven't talked about Star Trek. We haven't talked about the zombies and the robots in my sci-fi musical, but I'm going straight into, like, pure chaos wisdom of our father's Jewish philosophy. So okay. there is there's a, there's a saying, lo alecha hamlacha ligmor, velo atal ben chlorin mena. Like, it's, it's not, it's really a social justice thing, right? It's not your job to finish the work. But that doesn't mean that you're free to not do anything. Yeah, right. You don't have to finish it. You're not going to finish it, but you got to be part of it. And I mm-hmm. think that, like, that's probably well applied to the process of writing anything. It's like any day you sit down does not have to be the day you finish, but you got to do something. That's a right? really, really great like, application. I yeah. I've, I'm only, this is only occurring to me in this conversation, right? Which is, why it's good to have these conversations is you've let me ramble for 55 minutes and I'm, I'm now giving you the two minutes of usable tape, um, <laughs> which is like how it works, which is how any of it works. That's why I pace for two hours, like thinking through game before I sit down to actually write a sketch. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's like, yeah, I, anytime you open up the document and you're dealing with a long form thing, your job is not to perfect it today. Your job is not even to perfect the full act. You just need to do the few scenes you said you were going to do today. Mm-hmm. And like some days you get three sentences written and that's a good day. And that's notably better than the days where you couldn't even bring yourself to open the computer, which is also a large part of it. Yeah. So. You know, I, I love that you're saying that. I love that you're sharing what um, she said about like, you know, I wrote, three lines today and that's that's okay i think that's what she said i hope i'm not totally in this, but you know what i'm talking about right she's a she's a, a comedian creator she was on sam b i forget what she's doing she's, i'm she's somewhat awesome. familiar with her i'm not uh, i know that she's great and i know that it means she's something great. for her to say <laughs> for someone of her uh stature of of greatness to say yeah, exactly. hey i only wrote exactly. three things <laughs> you know like I, I wrote a minimal amount doesn't sound like right. much, but you know what? That's okay. And I think that sort of at least like giving ourselves that level of grace is always necessary, even when we're not in a pandemic. But it's especially uh, it's especially necessary right now because our brain is going through a really weird thing, and we just don't know what yeah. to do. And uh, just but getting think- anything done is pretty impressive. Sure. Although I actually think I saw her write this. 
and you're right. Like seeing someone who like did Sam B and is now on a black lady sketch show say that obviously means a good deal to me because I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I really look up to this woman and if she has these days then it's okay for me to have these days. Um, but, but I think I saw her write that before we even started all of this. Like, I think that yeah. was a quote from like January, February that I saw her tweet that. And I was like, Oh, okay. It's even more applicable now. It's even more. Yeah. But always applicable yeah and when we get out of this when we get out of this period there's going to be this sudden rush of all of my creative blocked energy that i couldn't find well now i better finally write that novel (laughs) right now now life has returned to quote unquote normal so now i should be able to write guess what it's not all going to come flooding back at once right or it's going to come flooding back for some people. There are some people that are highly productive during this time, and there are some people that not, are, are not. And when we get out of this, some of those highly productive people will, will suddenly be blocked, and some of those blocked people will suddenly be free, and some of us have been blocked this whole time and will continue to be blocked after this. Like it's, and, so, and, and if we're in this long enough, we're all going to go through different phases within this. Right. And then we're all going to have to figure out how to survive in the world when it ends. Like, it's, I mean, Jenny Jaffe is another person that was like, you're only, you are measuring your level. I'm going to, again, misquote her, unfortunately, but you're measuring your level of productivity based on the rules of a world that no longer exists. Yeah. And there was something similar to that that I saw that was, uh, it was something along the lines, I'm going to butcher it. It was something my girlfriend sent me, but it was basically saying you were experiencing the withdrawals of believing the productivity lie or, or something to that effect of just like, right. we right. can get all this done and it means everything. You know, like that's, there's a bit of a lie and we're having some sort of withdrawal effects from the lie that we are telling right. ourselves when things were quote unquote normal. Yeah. Kind of know. I mean, this is part of my thing about being like, well, what's the worst case scenario? What if I'm only ever just a, a teacher who uses creative programming to entertain and teach kids and get them to think harder? And it's like, yeah, that doesn't mean I'm a failure as a human being. Right. It feels to me, like, well, I've not achieved very much if I'm merely an educator. But like, <laughs> I shouldn't shit on myself for that. That's still a great thing to be in the world. And like, right. any work is valuable work. Like, right. Again, like it, all of us are, the machine doesn't run without all of the various cogs. And we have an idea of like, well, the cogs that matter most are the, are the famous people or, the, or the, the famous screenwriters. And then the non-famous screenwriters come second. And then like those of us that have won festivals but are not getting paid to be screenwriters, that's the third level of cog in the machine. But like there's only the value we assign to it. Right. And I say all of that and I'm going to get off of this podcast and I'm going to go back to totally shitting on myself and beating myself up and not being able to get anything done and feeling guilty for it. But at least we're acknowledging how ridiculous all of these, all of these feelings are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm so glad that you're bringing it up and I hope that it's something that we all can start adopting more of just like recognizing the lies. I love this conversation. I'm going to keep believing them, but I'm going to, I know, I know. It's going to take some time to unlearn. (laughs) <laughs> I recently I find I did use this quarantine to finally read Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle. Uh-huh. And there is um you know this new novel that was written what 60 years ago. And there's a part of it is this whole philosophy bo- bokenism bokenism and it's um 
the FOMA or like the little lies you tell yourself mm-hmm. that make your life feel better. And it's, it's like this lie of productivity is one of these big lies we tell ourselves that does not make our life feel better. Like, but at the same time, how do we stop thinking about it that way? I like, how, how do we ever just... We need an alternate... Yeah, we need to do the work to find an alternate way of thinking. Yeah, but it's not... It's not that easy. <laughs> it's, and it's... No, and it's, it's also that, like, the facade doesn't just fall away. It's not, right. it's not just a series of things. It's a whole right. belief system, and it's... And again, it actually doesn't matter what the rest of society believes as long as you feel good about your own work. But mm-hmm. also how, how do any of us actually feel about our own work? So it's right. Whatever. I, I have answers. I have no answers, only more questions and pontifications. <laughs> I have only like Andrew Como being like, we're apart, but we're apart together. Yes. Yes. I have nothing but empty platitudes that actually do nothing to improve anybody's life. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, if you wanted a self-help podcast, you shouldn't have been listening to a freaking comedian. So. <laughs> well, you know, like when Keisha Zoller was on, there were a lot of, you know, really great nuggets of wisdom that came out of it and, and oh, good thought to have. Well, and course. we're having that again. And I appreciate that. And I could ask. Well, a million more questions. You're very welcome. But we are at the end of the episode. And if I could give you any piece of wisdom, the Megan Sass wisdom would be listen to the Keisha Zoller wisdom. That's, that's what my, <laughs> yeah. my take of it would be for everybody. <laughs> Everyone needs to listen to Keisha Zoller more than they're listening to Keisha yeah, Zoller. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> You're going to do a song for us. I am. I am, yes. I'm very excited um, about it. Tell us what you're about to play for us. Great. So I think that one of the helpful things is um, in creating content is having a goal or something to work toward to. And so um, this is the only song I've actually finished so far during this period. And it's also I had a deadline, which was that um, my buddy Tom Brennan, who runs Electoral Dysfunction, asked me to write a song for the show um, because he's still doing a quarantine Electoral Dysfunction. So it was good that I had a deadline to create something for. Mm-hmm. And I jumped on a Zoom with some of my buddies at a Shabbat dinner and played this for them. And then they gave me some notes. So um, sometimes we have to set arbitrary goals, but it's also good to have like actual deadlines we have to meet. So this is a song I am living alone. This is a song for single people living alone that are struggling. This is my advice to you. It's called... Go fuck yourself. <laughs> well, you say you're feeling restless. Can't take this solitude. You jump back on the Tinder to improve your attitude. You say it's just one hookup. It's for your mental health. You ask me for my blessing and I say, go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. It's a simple thing to do. If I can do it, you can do it too. Don't be such a dickhole. Choose to do what's right. Just stay home. Fuck yourself and save a life. Well, you don't like what you're hearing. You think it isn't very nice. There's no need to get offended. It's not an insult. It's advice. 
for an ounce of human compact can cut deeper than a knife. And if you go to give some pleasure, you just might take a life. Go fuck yourself. It's a simple thing to do. If I can do it, you can do it too. Don't be such a comrade. Choose to do what's right. Just stay home, fuck yourself, and save a life. Well, I know it can get lonely with just yourself to hold. But that pang of melancholy means there's good within your soul. Recalibrate your compass, pump your arrows straight and true. Because if you leave your own apartment, the dick you're jerking off is you. Go fuck yourself. It's a simple thing to do. If I can do it, you can do it too. Don't be such a scrotum. Choose to do what's right. Stay home, fuck yourself, and save a life. In these times unprecedented, we all must do our part. You must bottom your own top and flip the switch within your heart. Be the change you wish to see. Let your inner hero moan by not getting any ass. The ass you say could be your own. That's just the course. That's okay. Go fuck yourself. It's a simple thing to do. If I can do it, you can do it too. Don't be such a cop dump. Choose to do what's right. Stay home, fuck yourself, and save a life. Just stay home, fuck yourself, and save a life. There you go. <laughs> there it is. Megan, it was so great talking. Yep. I think you're so awesome. Thank you for coming on Thanks, the podcast. Steven. Thank you so much for having me. Fun times. I love that chat. I hope you did as well. If you want to know more about Megan, you can check out her website, Megan-Sass.com, and follow her on Facebook at MeganSass123 and on Twitter at Megan underscore Sass. And follow us at There It Is Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Links in bio. Check out all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. We have a lot of great guests from the entertainment community and more more they're all in the feed and are free and we have a fun guest from houston she's a stand-up comic and that's next week's episode so check that out don't forget you can subscribe to our newsletter go to there to find out more until next time be good to each other the music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. Yeah.